If we accomplish nothing else this evening, then, that Christ is glorified, we have done what we've come to do. To glorify Him in song, in prayer, and hopefully in reading from the book of John, as I invite you to open to the fourth chapter of the fourth gospel, that will help us to draw closer to Him. Glad to be with you tonight, and we're going to spend our time looking at a text that is very familiar to most of us as students of the New Testament, maybe not familiar to those in the world that are not familiar with the Bible or with the text found therein, but it's actually a text that we recently delved into in our study of the harmony of the Gospels, that Brother Brian and Brother John have done a nice job of taking us through that particular study, and as we continue reading through the four Gospels, we appreciate the truths that are found therein. But I want to focus in on John chapter 4 this evening and just look at the idea of the one woman, the one well, and the four lessons that we can learn. Now, you could say that there are at least a dozen or maybe 24 or maybe 50 lessons that we can learn from John chapter 4, but that would make for an awful long sermon. So we'll just make it four very basic lessons that we learn from a text that we talked about a few weeks ago. And we want to revisit tonight. I want to begin by looking at the text and doing something a little bit different than I typically do. Uh, I've had a number of people reach out or I've overheard conversations. Uh, we miss David and Teresa today. And David has been taking us through the book of Revelation on Sunday evening for the last couple of uh, weeks. And I know the individuals have really appreciated just as a congregation doing what the men of old did thousands of years ago when they read Old Testament texts and the, oh, the scriptures were opened. And we're going to read not all of chapter 4, but maybe a good portion of chapter 4. What I'm going to do is I'm going to read it very rapidly. I will slow it down at a couple of key places to kind of hint at where we're going to go in our study, and then we'll come back and make our four observations. But I want to actually start in verse 6 and read down through uh, almost the entire chapter. We'll stop at around verse 42. So if you would read with me in John chapter 4, beginning in verse 6, where it says that Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, being weary from his journey, sat thus by the well. It was about the sixth hour. A woman of Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. Then the woman of Samaria said to him, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan woman? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Jesus answered and said to her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that says to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him, and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw with, and the well is deep. Where then do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob, who gave us the well and drank from it himself, as well as his sons and his livestock? Jesus answered and said to her, Whoever drinks of this water will thirst again. But whoever drinks of the water that I shall give him will never thirst. But the water that I shall give him will become in him a fountain of water, springing up into everlasting life. Woman said, Sir, give me this water that I may not thirst, nor come here to draw. Jesus said, to her, Go call your husband and come here. She said, I have no husband. Jesus said, You've well said, I have no husband, for you've had five husbands. For the one whom you have now is not your husband, and that you spoke truly. The woman said, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, 
And you Jews say that in Jerusalem is the place where one ought to worship. Jesus said, Dear woman, believe me, the hour is coming when you will neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We know that we, what we worship for salvation is of the Jews. But the hour is coming. And now it is when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such to worship Him. God is spirit. And those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Coleman said, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When He comes, He will tell us all these things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now at this point his disciples came. And they marveled that he talked with a woman. Yet no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? The woman had left her water pot. Went her way into the city. And said to the men, come, see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? And they went out of the city and they came to him. In the meantime his disciples urged him saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat of which you do not know. And his disciples said to one another, Has anyone brought him anything to eat? Jesus says, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. Do you not say there are still four months and then comes the harvest? Behold, I say, you lift up your eyes and look at the fields, for they are already white for harvest. He who reaps receives wages, gathers fruit for eternal life. The both he who sows and he who reaps may rejoice together. For in this the saying is true, one sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for that which you have not labored, others have labored, and you have entered into their labors. Now 39 through 42. Many of the Samaritans in that city believed in him. Because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. So when the Samaritans had come to him, they urged him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. And many more believed because of his own word. And they said to the woman, Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him. And we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. As with any text we read, we, we read it and we say, That is impressive. That is, as, as young people would say, that's cool. Some of us older people like to borrow that phrase to make us sound cool ourselves, but we realize that we make ourselves sound silly in the process. But that's cool. That's neat. That is impressive. And I love verse 42 where it ends, where it says, We know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. This is indeed an exciting passage to read, which leads it to our first point that I want us to make. Four observations from our study tonight. First is the subject of excitement, and that is salvation should be an exciting thing. Because salvation is exciting at its very core. You know, if someone falls off of a boat and you throw him or her a life raft and the person makes it back to safety, that person is certainly excited. And those of us who participated in the salvation process of that person's physical life are equally excited. And so when we engage in saving souls, granted we are not the ones who bled uh, are, and for those individuals, but we are the ones who are the ambassadors like we talked about this morning. Note, if you would, the following facts that lend, it to, uh, lend us to appreciate the excitement that's going on here. Notice these facts. First of all, the woman comes for a specific purpose. 
She comes to draw water. That was the only thing she was concerned about on her journey to the well on that particular day. Little did she know of the great things that were going to occur to her on that day. Secondly, the woman asks for this special water. And you, you might say, well, I'm not sure if I was in her position, I would have asked for that water. But again, she doesn't know fully who Jesus is on this particular occasion. But she says, please give me this special water that I may thirst no more. And then thirdly, what does she do with her water pot? She leaves it. And why is that inserted into the text? And I appreciate the way that John structured his class this morning, particularly in asking those questions a couple of times. Why does the Holy Spirit include details for us, if not for us to learn something from them? This woman is so excited that she leaves her water pot, maybe because she can travel faster to get back into and to give this information to her countrymen and countrywomen. Maybe because she's just forgetful. She says, forget this. I'm going. I'm moving forward because this is exciting. This Jesus, this character, this perhaps Messiah that I have interacted with is indeed an important character. And the question is why? Because salvation is exciting for us to be engaged in. It is clear to me, and I think it should be clear to you, and I think it was clear to her that she was excited about having finally met the Messiah. I know that the Messiah is coming. When he comes, he's going to tell us all these things. And then Jesus does not go into a, a, a dialogue or a monologue. He just simply says, I who speak to you am he. And then he allowed her the opportunity to respond. Incidentally, that may be one of a, a great teaching tools that we can employ. When we're trying to talk to someone about someone about the Bible or talk to someone about the church, sometimes we don't have to give them a great oration. But just give them a few different facts. I'm going to have a sermon in a week or two or three on why the Bible should be really believed and why it is really powerful. And the whole concept behind that is that we ought to be able to stand in great confidence of the scriptures and say, you know what? These things are real. I believe them and I'm excited about what they say. This should serve as a reminder for us to do a number of things. Number one, let me suggest in a list of three, that the excitement of salvation should prompt continual thanksgiving. Go back to verse 39 in the text. You'll hopefully see why I chose to read a little bit of a lengthier section. Many of the Samaritans of that city believed him because of the word of the woman who testified, he told me all that I ever did. You see, there was this communal excitement and then communal thanksgiving. And I didn't necessarily plan this particular sermon for this particular time of the year for that reason, but we are now 17 and a half days, not that I'm counting it down, and so we get to be thankful for turkey and thankful for ham and thankful for whatever's going to be on your plate. That's something we're to be thankful about. But I think we all agree that at the only time that we, as Christians, pause to give real thanksgiving to our God is in a Thursday in November, we have missed what thanksgiving is about. And you know what is really frustrating is that many people in the world will not pause even once a year to really think about what thanksgiving is about. The idea of thanking our God and appreciating Him for His kindness and for His bountiful blessings and for even the simple things that Brother David led us in prayer about tonight. For our food, for our shelter, for our clothing, and for all the spiritual blessings that exist in Jesus the Christ. 
Let me also suggest here, secondly, that the excitement of salvation should serve as a perspective changer. Let me suggest to you that in verse 9, that to get kind of uh, technical here, the woman started out with a social complex focus. That was the lens through which she saw the situation she was in. Particularly in verse 9, it says, How is it that you, being a Jew, ask a drink from me, a Samaritan, and a woman? I've got a couple of strikes against me here. I was talking about this particular subject today uh, to a group of about a dozen elderly ladies. Not that uh, I'm not about to define what elderly is, because now I've got myself into a fix. <laughs> Uh, but I was at a nursing home. I go to a nursing home about once a month or once every six weeks to talk with some shut-ins uh, and, and preach a short little sermon. And I shared with them the idea that, especially non, without a lot of biblical knowledge, they may not know who Samaritans are. You guys know who Samaritans are. These are people who are these intermixed individuals who have intermarried and they have soiled themselves in the eyes of the, of the important Jews. And one of the ladies in, in the audience, they said, yes, the, the Jews, he interrupted, which is fine, uh, on that occasion. She said, the Jews thought themselves to be very high. I said, that was right. I said, that's what was being thought of in this particular occasion. But how would you talk to me? I'm a Samaritan. I'm a woman. I'm a nobody. And you Jews have no dealings with us Samaritans. But then notice what happens as the story progresses in verse 29 where it says the woman in verse 29 says, Come see a man who told me all the things that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? It seems to me as I'm reading over the course of 21 verses that this woman's confidence grew. That she saw herself in a different light. And she saw herself with a different perspective. Because with Christ everything changed. That changed absolutely everything. And you know what's it, it, so applicable to us, and it's not one of the takeaways that we're walking away with at the conclusion of our study tonight, but it is that when we have Christ as our focus, and He is our optometrist, like I talk about from time to time, we put on the new lenses with which we see things better, and we see things in an improved way. And let me suggest to you, thirdly, that salvation is exciting in the sense that it should make us want to go and tell others. Did you notice that one of the greatest evangelists in the book of John is a lady who is nameless, who happens to be a Samaritan? So there's something to be said for you do not have to be a man in a pulpit wearing a tie in order to be a great evangelist. Now, hopefully if you do stand in a pulpit and wear a tie or whatever the case may be, whatever you choose to wear, uh, hopefully you are an evangelist in the sense that you carry good news and you're not ashamed to share it. But let me share with you uh, probably one of the greatest evangelists I've ever met who's now left this earth after 104 years was an individual who would engage anybody and everybody in every store that this person went to. And this person had so many studies. This person would ride on a motorcycle on the back end. Some of you know who I'm talking about. Would ride on the back end of a motorcycle of a preacher who doesn't live too far from here, who's been preaching for 40-some years, going around from one study to the next study, and she, I'll let that detail out, 
she was the one who was securing all these studies for this preacher. And this preacher was overloaded with studies because of this one woman. Because she just had a knack for being able to say the right things and engage in the right conversations. Some people have that talent, but we all have the ability to at least share the message with others. One of the greatest, in the words of a preacher friend of mine, is that Bernice was one of the greatest evangelistas that he had ever met. She died a couple of years ago. And one day we'll get to speak with her again. And maybe we can ask her, what was, what, how did you do that so well? But the point that I'm trying to make is, you may be a man or a woman. You are young or you are old. You are talented or, as you may say, not very talented, but you are. And as Brother John pointed out in our study this morning in the book of Luke, everybody has abilities. And everybody has something that they can offer to the kingdom. And that's exactly what the woman did in verse 28 through about verse 39. In 1 Corinthians chapter 9 and verse 16, a passage that came to mind in thinking about this particular concept the Apostle Paul says, Woe is me that if I do not preach the gospel, I have not done my job. He says specifically, If I preach the gospel, I have nothing to boast of, for necessity is laid upon me. Yes, woe is me if I do not preach the gospel. In 2 Timothy chapter 2 and verse 2, Paul wrote to the young evangelist who was trying to teach him. He says, These things which you have heard from me among many witnesses... Commit these to faithful men who will be able to teach others also. Incidentally, in my opinion, 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 2, perhaps is the greatest teaching method of how we evangelize to others. Each one teaches one. And then once you are taught, you teach. And then once you are taught, you teach. It's really the greatest platform in which the broadcast message of the gospel can be accomplished where one person teaches another who teaches another teaches another. Let me suggest secondly in our list of four uh, big lessons that we learned that opportunities abound. When you think about teaching, when you think about evangelism, when you think about trying to share the message with others, it ought not be something that we put into our schedule. It's not something that you write down if you, if you keep your schedule written down like some of us who are a little bit older or these days you go into your phone and you say I've got an appointment next Thursday. Um, and my appointment is I need to be teaching someone. Nothing wrong with putting something in your phone to remind you of that, but it ought to be that in everything that we do, we are the only Bible the careless world will read, as we sometimes would say. Rather, it should become a natural extension of who we are as Christians, just naturally who we are, that people see that we are different, and people will see that you are different by your kindness, by your talking spiritually, by you, the fact that you are engaging in spiritual conversations. And Jesus is the master of this. He's taking a normal statement about water and turning it into a spiritual conversation. And you know what I've seen many of you as parents of young children do as I've overheard your conversations? I've heard you do the same things. And you're to be commended for that. And if you're not doing that, then find opportunities to do so. Whether it be a rainbow that takes you back to Genesis 7 and 8, whether it be rain, whether it be the sunshine, 
whether it be a tree. I mean, Jesus was able to take trees, even dead ones, and say, I'm going to teach you something spiritually about this. That's how great of a teacher he was. And it seems to me that we learn from the master teacher by spending time with him. As we read through the Gospels, as we've been doing over the last four and a half months, we discover that Jesus' normal mode of operation is to always be teaching. And that reminds me of some of the greatest secular teachers I've ever known. Uh, probably the greatest secular teacher, non-spiritual teacher, was uh, Dr. Peter Frederick. Uh, and Dr. Frederick was someone who would walk into, and I may have shared this story with you before, but he would walk into a room with a blackboard, which shows how old I am, and he would look at what was written from the previous uh, lecture session, which wasn't necessarily in his study. And he would walk up to the blackboard, and he would look at it, and he would say, hmm. and then he would ask a group of about 25 of us men, I went to an all-male institution, I don't know what I was thinking. <laughs> it worked out okay, though, didn't it? <laughs> but he would ask the guys in the room, he said, what do you think they were talking about last hour? And he'd sit there for a good 50, he'd burn 15 minutes wasting time talking about what the previous class had understood and taught based on the professor's notes on the blackboard. And the whole time he was teaching us. And it took me a couple of years to really figure out, ah, he was using that as an opportunity to engage us in trying to figure out what they were learning in order to figure out what we could learn because he had an end motive behind the whole thing. And it was masterful the way that he had done it. And the point being is that we use everyday opportunities. What's written on a blackboard, what's found in nature, what the weather does, what we see around us in order to share what the master teacher did so rightly and so ably by using normal, simple, everyday events to promote or facilitate spiritually based conversations. That's one of the greatest ways that we can go about sharing the message because opportunities abound around us. Number three, I want us to appreciate that physical focus is natural, but spiritual focus is where we really need to be. It goes back to the whole rice or Christ concept dichotomy that I had talked about a number of months ago. When we think about our physical lives, that is truly the natural thing to do. It is natural to think about our physical health first. It is natural to think about our physical well-being first. It is natural to think about our financial well-being first. But thinking about things, and the thing is, the thing about spiritual lives is it's a harder thing to do. Note, if you would, the example of the disciples going back to our text here in verse 8. His disciples had gone away into the city to do what? To buy food, to buy bread. Now, is there anything inherently wrong in that? And the answer is no. Nothing wrong with doing so. We have to provide for ourselves and our family. Paul even goes as far as to say, if we don't do so, we're worse than an infidel or an unbeliever. But was their perspective where it really needed to be on this particular occasion? Maybe a brief conversation with the master teacher saying, hey, we are thinking about going to buy bread, but is there something that you think we should stick around for? Stick around and watch this. Maybe don't stick around and watch this because I'm going to teach another lesson on the fact that you come back. <laughs> because maybe Jesus knew the whole story in the first place, as he does as deity himself. 
And then, verse 27, at this point his disciples came and they marveled that he talked with a woman. Remember the socioeconomic aspects of, of gender roles. And no one said, John records, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? And then note, if you would, the first thing said after the woman left in verse 31. Jesus has had this conversation with a Samaritan woman. They've been absent buying bread at the marketplace. They come back, and the first thing they say to Jesus is what? Did you catch the first thing they said in verse 31? I bet you're hungry. Why don't you eat something? Is there anything inherently wrong in that? Probably not. I mean, when a person is hungry, you want them to, to eat. When you go to grandma's house, she thinks, especially if you're a, a younger person, that you haven't eaten in a week. She fries up 17 eggs and three pounds of bacon for you because you haven't eaten in a long time and you're starving. So there's nothing necessarily wrong with that. But I want you to notice this. What is interesting to me is this. Note what they did not say, or do you think they might be interested in knowing more? Do you think she understands the message? Or maybe just simply, that's great news. It would, to put it in terms that we would really appreciate Let's pretend that you came to me and said, Leland, I've got someone that I'd like for you to study with. And um, I'd say, okay, happy to do so. So we study for a while. And then the next week, you have an opportunity to talk to me for the first time. You've been working with this person to either invite them to services or to invite them to, to study with a preacher or, or to study with you, but you, you thought it would be better than they studied with you, whatever the case may be. And so we said, sure, we'll do that. And then you see me for the first time and then you say, have you had anything good to eat lately? I mean, that's just silly. We would not respond to it. What's the first thing you're going to ask? How did the study go? Did you have any headway? Was he interested? Did he act like he'd be interested in a follow-up study? Those are the kinds of questions that we want to be asking. Instead, they're not asking these kinds of spiritually-minded questions because they're focused on the physical things. And before we get too hard on the disciples, we would do the same thing most likely. Master, it's time for you to eat. Jesus steps back and almost like he would say, don't you want to know what we were talking about? Because we just had a breakthrough moment here. This is big what's going on. Which brings me to my fourth and final observation, and that is there's a concept of knowledge and service that have to be married together. Knowing scripture is one thing. And I have known of people in an academic setting who know an awful lot about the Bible, but they don't have any service to go along with that knowledge. And so we've got to appreciate that you can't just know things, you have to actually put them into practice. Because putting it into action is another thing too. Note if you, if you would, one final time in our text, verses 32 through 34, where in John 4 it says, I have food to eat of which you do not know. Has anyone brought him something to eat? The disciples asked. Jesus says, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to finish his work. I love those particular verses because Jesus is clearly here 
viewing the purpose of his life as doing what is right more than just knowing or talking about what is right. Now, we need to be good Bible students. We need to be good students of the Word. But if we do not apply it, then it is not successful in fulfilling the mission that God has given us to do. And that is to do the will of the Father. When it comes to knowledge and service, it goes back to 1 Corinthians 9.16. And it goes back to the concept that our identity needs to be closely associated with the purpose of Jesus and the purpose of who he was. I say all that because we have all known individuals who fit one of those two molds very nicely. A lot of knowledge or a lot of service. I've known of people in the world who are very service-oriented, but they're not doing it from a spiritual point of view. They're just doing it because they're nice people. That's not good either. I'm glad that they're doing nice things and making the world a, a better place in a physical sense. But until we are doing what is right for the purpose of doing God's will based on the knowledge that we have, we've not succeeded in adding knowledge and service together. Because service to others or service to him is key to that very identity. Well, that's the message that I have for us tonight. But I wanted to just conclude with these four simple takeaways which go directly to what we've talked about in the four points that we've made. And the first of those is simply this. Is that we should never lose sight of the fact that being a Christian is exciting. You know, whether it be Disney World or Disneyland, the happiest place on earth... Nothing wrong with that, but the happiest people on earth ought to be Christians. We ought to be individuals who are excited about our faith. And every time I think about that particular point, I'm reminded of the preacher who was the preacher when I was five years old. He was from the time I was born until I was six when he moved away. And he says that sometimes, and some of you know who I'm talking about here, because he's still alive. He's 153 years old, I think. Um, he's getting up there now. But he, he would say, some Christians look like they've been weaned on a sour pickle. I mean, some Christians just look like they're, they're what was me? I've got a horrible life. We as Christians are to be the happiest people in the world because of the fact that it doesn't mean we don't have bad days. doesn't mean that we don't have challenging days. But we're happy people. We are delighted. We are Godliness with contentment is great gain kind of people. Number two, we should always be looking for each and every opportunity to provide service to others, to do good, to set good examples, and to teach those spiritual lessons, whether that be to our children, whether that be to our co-workers, whether that be with our friends, whoever it may be. Let me suggest number three, that we should work at not getting too caught up in the physical side of things that we forget what really matters. And that's a lesson, as I said this morning, preaching to myself, I've got to be careful of getting excited about things in this world, getting concerned about financial obligations, or being concerned about physical health. Those are things that are important to be engaged in. But you could be the healthiest, most financially rounded person in the world and not be a Christian and lose it all because you haven't saw what was right to be focused on in the first place. And then number four, in terms of service to others, we need to know the truth and use it in service to others. 
Verse 42 is my favorite. Now we believe, not because of what you said, for we ourselves have heard him, and we know that this is indeed the Christ, the Savior of the world. That's a perfect segue to any invitation in the sense that I don't want you to become a Christian tonight or to make your life right with God as an erring Christian simply because of something I have said. I mean, I hope I have some impact, and I hope that you've listened. But I want you to see Jesus for yourself and say, wow, that's spectacular stuff. And as you read through the harmony of the Gospels, as you read through the Scriptures, they are those things that remind you and teach you about the importance of the Savior, Jesus the Christ. And we'd be glad to help you in doing what is right, and be glad to help you to make the necessary corrections this very evening. The Bible says that he that believes and is baptized will be saved. He that does not believe will be condemned. Mark 16, verse 16. That's not the doctrine of this particular church. That's not something that we as members came up with. It is something that we looked at what the scriptures had to say, and so that's what we teach. That's what we land on. Because salvation is exciting, we want you to be a participant in it by being baptized. Or if you're not living correctly, you need to make some sort of a correction. We'd be glad to pray for you and pray with you. We can help you in any way. Let us know while we stand and while we sing.